and a good morning, and I want to thank all of you, and thank you especially to all our folks from Friendship Ministries this morning for being here and for leading us in singing, and thank you for all the caregivers that have come this morning as well. It's good to have you here. It's good to have, if you're family of our friends this morning and you're here, I want to welcome you here as well, and a special thank you to all our volunteers, especially Jane, who has championed this ministry in our church. And I'm sure we could still use more volunteers, right? If you like what you've seen here this morning and want to find out how you can get involved, make sure you talk to Jane and she'll let you know more about that uh, for sure. I think I saw some of the people from Ebenezer and Leduc here this morning as well. So if you're still here, I want to welcome you here this morning as well and thank you for putting us on to this ministry. Well, in the last part of our service, we're always privileged to be able to open up God's holy word and to learn something about how uh, God wants his people to live and to act and how God wants his people to function in the world. And we've been learning about that for the last couple of months from a section of our Bible called Philippians. If you are new to the Bible or new to the church, you might not be familiar with Philippians, but you might be familiar with some of the words in that part of the Bible, the words that you sometimes see as a motivational slogan come from this part of the Bible. That slogan is, I can do all things. Have you ever seen that? People will sometimes uh, stick that onto their social media profile. Athletes sometimes will tattoo that to their bodies as a reminder, uh, especially when they train and they need some extra motivation to push themselves. That saying is a way of inspiring people to do hard things. Unfortunately, That's only half of a sentence that leaves out most of the important part. The whole sentence is, I can do all things through God who gives me strength. So you see, to say only half of that saying as a way to motivate yourself actually misses the point of why that verse is there. If people wanted to use that slogan to be true to what it says, they would write something like, I can't do anything unless... God gives me the strength. Anyway, that saying is in Philippians. And I want to take us to Philippians this morning. And if you don't have a Bible along, we do have a few that are in the chairs in front of you. And if you're using those, you'll find Philippians on page 980. Page 980. And when you get there, you'll see a big bold number 2. That's the chapter, and if you go over to the next page, you'll find a small number 12. That's where I want you to go. That's the verse. Philippians 2, verse 12. And I'm going to read Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. By the way, the verse I was talking about is over on page 982, if you're using those Bibles, in chapter 4, verse 13, if you want to take a look there. But I want you to go back to chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent let me just stop there to say I found out this morning or this week that this is part of the Awana verses. So Awana kids, if you break out in song during this part of the singing, I, I'll just kind of keep going. 
Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now the reason I brought up chapter 4, verse 13, is because something similar is going on here in these first two verses, especially there in verses 12 and 13. If we just say the first part, it is incomplete. And it also focuses more on ourselves and our abilities rather than on God and on His power. The other reason I bring it up is because it has some connections to the idea of working out. Just like you have that saying that says, I can do all things. This has um, some connections to that idea as well. Those are the words people use when they train, when they build muscle. We naturally call that kind of training working out. I'm going to work out. But have you ever thought about why we use those words for training? Yeah, neither have I. I can see the work part of it, but why work out? So there's your Google assignment for the week. Figure out why weight training is called working out, and then come back and report to me next week. But we'll see those words here in Philippians 2, verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But in the very next verse, we see the words, work in, for it is God who works in you. So we want to take the next few minutes to try to understand what God is saying here, what God is calling us to do here. And before we do that, just a quick step back. Here's just a few facts by way of reminder. Philippians is a letter. It was written back in somewhere in the 60s A.D., It was written by a man by the name of Paul, Paul the Apostle. And he was writing from a prison in Rome. That's where he was being held prisoner at the time that he wrote this letter. And he was writing to a church hundreds of miles away in a city called Philippi. That he had gone through and started a church, planted a church in some ten or so years before he wrote this letter. And he had a profound affection for those people in that church. He writes here in Philippians about a few issues, but he really just wanted to write to encourage them. And in the providence and miracle of God, those very words were also, at the same time as Paul was writing them, being written by God to all churches and to all Christians. They're part of God's bigger letter that make up our Bible. And so this letter is just as relevant for Christians in our church today as it was back then. These are God's words to us. God's words transcend time. And that's why we want to pay close uh, close attention to them. As we get to this section, it shows up in a bigger section that started back in chapter 1, verse 27, where it says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Since Christians claim to follow Jesus Christ, 
that's in our name as Christians, right? We, we claim to follow Christ. Then they should live in such a way, in such a manner, that it honors the one that they claim to follow. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And over in this section that I just read, he, or, or in that section from verse 27 to where I just read, he emphasizes their Christian unity, tells them to stand firm in one spirit, same mind and the same love, and he emphasizes Christian humility. That's how we live out the Christian life. That's how we live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the greatest example of humility is Jesus Christ himself, who, if you look back just a couple of verses in chapter 2, verse 8, willingly humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that gets us to this section. And so he's saying, in light of everything that he's just written about unity, everything he's just written about humility, in light of who Jesus was, in light of what Christ did, in light of that monumental section from verses 6 to 11, where it talks about Christ emptying himself and humbling himself, and God exalting him. Therefore, it's the first verse of our section, he comes to this next part. This is the end of that section. This is how you live a, worthy, a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is what it looks like to live like Jesus. This is what it means to live like a Christian. And more to the point, this is what it's like to live as a Christian in the world. Where Christians will stand out. Where Christians will appear as different and distinct. So let's walk this section out. Summary of verses 12 to 18 might go like this. Christians who are united into churches, that's where they gather, have to work out what God has worked in. Christians have to work out what God has worked in. And when they do, they will shine as lights in the world. We could divide this into two sections, verses 12 and 13, and then verses 14 to 18, both of which have one main instruction. In the first section... The instruction, the the command, doesn't show up until the end of verse 12. And before he gets there, Paul affirms his affection for the Christians over in Philippi. He calls them, my beloved. And he tells them, basically, that they're doing great. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul is commending them here for obeying, for, for following Jesus as their Lord for bowing their knee to him, for following his word. Romans calls this the obedience of faith. When we come into faith, we want to obey Christ. They're already doing well. But he's coming here to say, stay at it. Get after it. Keep going. As you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like I said, Paul's basically coming back around to chapter 1, verse 27. He's going to say the same thing from a different angle. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 27, becomes work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here in chapter 2, verse 12. What does that mean? Well, it's really just a call for the people of God 
to keep growing in godliness, in Christ-likeness. We use a fancy word for that sometimes called sanctification, which basically means becoming holy. Since you have been saved out of the world, since you have been saved, since you have been converted, since you, and since you've been saved out of the world and into the church, now work out your salvation with joy or with fear and trembling. You have been changed. You have been transformed. You've been regenerated. You've been converted. You've been forgiven. You've been justified. Now, get at it. Keep going. He really wants to motivate them here. For a uh, brief little window in my life, very brief, I got into working out. I should say, actually, that Marlene, as my birthday present one year, arranged for someone to train me. My trainer, his name was Andrew, had a bit of a different, not this Andrew, a different Andrew a number of years ago. He had a bit of a different method in that he would train me hard, very hard, for one hour a week. And that's all. But by hard, I mean that by the end of that one, work, one hour workout, I was pretty much on the brink of death. You can ask my, my older kids. I used to come home, and they used to always want to play with me at lunch, and I would go just before lunchtime, and I'd come home, and my boys, Mac and Dawson, would be crawling all over me, but I'd be kind of laying there like a corpse. Most of the time, I would join in and play with them, but not that day. But when it came to that hour, the, the, this trainer, he would show me what exercise to do, and then he'd change his role from instructor into motivator. He'd be right beside me. He'd be in my ear saying things like, come on, you're doing great. Just, just one more. You, you can do this. Keep going. Well, that's sort of what Paul is doing here. He says, you're doing great. Now just keep going. Stay at it. One more. Just don't stop. He's talking about living as a follower of Jesus. But he uses the same language here. Work out. Your salvation with fear and trembling. Working out your salvation is going to take some effort. You may even feel like stopping. You may feel like giving up at at, at different points along the way. But he's encouraging them here to stay at it, stay with it. Well, he ends with another line there. He doesn't only say work out your salvation. He says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why does he end with that? Well, it's exactly because, as believers, we are prone to times of weakness. We do have times when we just feel like we can't keep going. And so in terms of godliness, of growing in godliness, of building up our spiritual muscles, if you want to put it that way, weakness usually takes the form of temptation and sin. And so we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because the very last thing we should ever want to do is to somehow dishonor God. And so we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. On the one hand, knowing our weaknesses, and on the other hand, acknowledging God's holiness and living in absolute terror of offending Him. You might look at that and be saying, oh, that's near impossible. You might be saying what I heard myself saying in that gym often. I can't do this. can't do another one. 
And when it comes down to it, if you say that, you're absolutely right. You, you can't do this. If, if this passage, if, if Paul would just go on and skip verse 13 and go on to verse 14, we would all be in total despair. We'd have every right to be terrified because we'd be counting on our own power to grow in godliness. But left to our own strength, we would always drift away. Always drift away from God. So thank God we have verse 13. Just listen again to verses 12 and 13 in combination. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for... Here's the ground, here's the reason. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So we have to work out. We have to expend effort, but we can only work out because as we're working out, God is working in. I was going to say, he's kind of like the divine protein shake. That might be a little bit irreverent. This is the only way we can hope to grow in our faith. This is the only way we can keep going. And the good news is God is doing this. Yes, you will have temptation. Yes, you will have times of weakness. Yes, you will even fail. But God is working in you in such a way that in the end, He will finish His work. Right? We've already learned that back in chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And we've already talked about chapter 4, verse 13, up ahead, I can do all things, don't stop there, through Him who strengthens me. So brothers and sisters, keep working out your salvation. Stay at it, don't stop, but know that as you're working it out, God the Creator, God the Father, is actively willing This is his purposeful desire. He wills and works in you for his good pleasure. It is God's will that you grow. It is God's will that you become more like Jesus. It is God's will that you're moving from one degree of glory to another. But it's not only God's will. God is actively working to make it happen. He wills and he works. Yes, for you, but ultimately for his good pleasure. In the end, this is not about you. This is about God's good pleasure. Our growth, our obeying, our worthy of the gospel lives are to the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1 tells us, and to the glory of his Son. But God's work does not negate our effort. Verse 13 is an encouraging reminder that God has not abandoned us to work out our own salvation. We work, we work out what he works in. But the second section, starting at verse 14, Paul is going to tell the church that what working our, out our salvation looks like for his people, for the people that he's converted, for the people who make up the family of God. And he starts with a bang. When God is working in Christians, when God is so powerfully working in a church, Christians will do all things without grumbling or disputing. And with that, Paul 
strikes a nerve, doesn't he? As you're working out your salvation, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We live in a time, don't we, when people grumble about everything. Never mind, in everything, don't grumble. Do all things without grumbling. We grumble about everything. Dispute about everything. And, and, and it's gotten worse since people can hide behind screens and keyboards. They become even more bold in their discontent. But here's the thing. The family of God is not immune from that either, are we? Even toward each other. It's what made James have to write in chapter 5, verse 9 of James, do not grumble against each other, brothers and sisters. So why would Christians ever grumble? Where would that come from? Well, it comes firstly because of the fact we come from a long line of grumblers and disputers. And it started all the way back with, oh, Adam, who grumbled and disputed with God himself. When God confronts him about eating the fruit, he blames the woman you gave me. And you can go down the line. Cain, Moses, and most egregious, the people of Israel themselves, who I think Paul had in mind here when he wrote this. God's chosen people. Over and over again, God acted supernaturally to save them from Egypt. He, he, he supplied them food that just came from heaven. He supplied them water that came out of a rock. He, he brought them into their own land. Yet after every one of these great miracles of intervention from God, after each one of them, right after each one of them, they started grumbling and disputing. So this says, here in Philippians, that 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 kind of thing is not becoming of the children of God. Of all the people in the world, we should be the ones that do everything without grumbling and disputing. Children of God back then were known for grumbling and disputing, but as you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, don't have that kind of reputation. That's what Paul's driving at. We can succeed where Israel failed. Are we known to be grumblers and disputers or are we known for our joy and our gladness? You know, that's what's great about having our friends with us today. I bet as you were watching them this morning, as you were singing with them, you noticed their joy and their excitement and their energy as they were singing, as they were banging their instruments. Yes, they have their challenges, yet they seem to do everything without grumbling and complaining. It's a good lesson for all of us, isn't it? It says, do everything without grumbling and disputing. In other words, with joy. Why? He goes on, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is all about our reputation. That's what these words mean, blameless, innocent, without blemish. It's not talking here about being perfect. It's talking about how we appear to the world, how the world observes us. 
We're going to have our challenges in this world too as Christians. We're going to stand out in the world. There is going to be something different about us. Or at least there should be. We, there's going to be times when we feel out of place. And so we should. We don't even have to give examples of how crooked and twisted our, our, our present world is. It's patently obvious wherever you look. And so on the one hand, we should embrace the fact that we are children of God. What a privilege, what a status. That is who we are by God's grace. He has taken us out of that crooked and twisted generation. We were there. He's taken us out and he's brought us into his family. We are distinguishable. But we should also recognize that we can be influential. As we're becoming children of God, by that I mean as we're becoming increasingly blameless and innocent, so we are children of God, yes, we've been made children of God, but we are becoming increasingly so as well, increasingly blameless and innocent, which basically means increasingly looking like our Lord, conformed into his image. As we're doing that, we will also appear to our world as lights, as stars that shine in our world. Wouldn't you agree that there's nothing as beautiful as a clear, starlit night? And the darker it is, the, the more you can get away from the man-made artificial lights of, of the city, the brighter the stars appear. As we are known for our joy and for our integrity, we will be children of God in the world, among whom we shine as lights. How do we shine most brightly in this kind of world? Verse 16, by holding fast to the word of life. This is what makes us distinguishable and influential. We hold fast to the word of life, and we hold out the word of life. It can mean both those things. What a, what a great way to describe the truth that we live by and are, guiding by, are guided by. It's the Bible, the word, is not just our guide. The, the, the Bible is not just our rule book. It's, it's not just our marching orders. It is the word of life. The word that brings life. It always reminds me of the time when all kinds of people had been following Jesus. He's gathered all these crowds around him because he was doing miracles and all sorts of things. They were treating him as a celebrity. But as soon as he started saying some hard things, they, they started leaving. They stopped following him. It actually says there in John chapter 6 where this happens that they were grumbling about what he said. And then they left. They, they, they liked when he was doing all sorts of neat things, but as soon as he said some hard things, they were gone. And so right after that, Jesus turns to his disciples, his closest followers, and he says, do you want to go away too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. You have the words of life. Brothers and sisters, you now have those same words. You have the words of life. We have the words of life as people, as a church. Let us hold fast to these words. And let us hold up these words to the world. They are the words that can bring life from death. We have been born again, First Peter tells us. We've been given new life 
through the living and abiding word. And the living and abiding word can cause others to be born again. Let us hold it up. Let us hold fast to it. It is this word that can bring life to a dark and dying world as we live in it and as we proclaim it. Well, at the end of the section, Paul says that when he hears that the church is living like this, it will be for his joy. This is what he hopes from them. He he may not see them again on earth, so he wants to hear that they're growing. He wants to hear that they're obeying. He wants to hear that they're living in a manner worthy of the gospel. He wants to hear about their good reputation, that they're shining like stars, that they're holding fast the word of life. He's spent himself on them. That's what being poured out as a drink offering is talking about. It's, It's sacrificial language. And now, he says, he may die. But even if he does, he says he will see them in the day of Christ. And when he does, he'll know that he didn't labor in vain. And he'll be proud that everything that, listen, not that they've done, but that God has done as he has worked in them for his good pleasure. Even if he dies, he says, I will be glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. There's this mutual partnership, this fellowship of rejoicing, of gladness. And so as Christians, as a church, as children of God, we do live in challenging times. And we stand out in such a world. We are different, but we can stand out with joy. And when we stand out with joy and gladness, when we do all things with joy and gladness, we shine as stars. We shine as stars in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing one more time. This is a song that our friends sing every week as they leave. And then uh, as, after I'm done praying, or after we're done singing, uh, they're going to go out into the foyer, and I think, Jane, have they made some cookies? Is that right? There's going to be some cookies out there, so they'd love for you to fellowship with them and say hi and welcome them here, and uh, it'd be just a great time of meeting them and being together. So let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for your word. This truly is the word of life. This is truly the word of joy and blessing. We praise you, our God, for working in us in such a way that we can work out our salvation. We confess our weakness. We confess our many failures. But we are grateful that you are surely making us more like your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for that assurance. Help us, we pray, to do everything without grumbling and disputing. We are inclined to do that, we admit. But we thank you this morning that even that, as we have been joined by these precious friends, that we can see what it is like to be joyful and to shine like stars in the midst of challenges. Help us to shine like lights as we face the challenge of living in a crooked and twisted world. We, we truly can do all things in the strength that you supply, and for that we are thankful. Thank you for your great love with which you loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.